WWRL, the worldwide radio leader. Finally, radio that listens. Express yourself. This is WWRL's Afternoon Drive on 1600. 1600 WWRL. We're back here on Afternoon Drive, WWRL Radio 1600. Uh, our next guest online is, of course, the ceasefire in the Middle East remains to be uh, a topic because who knows whether it will hold, whether it will... Uh, not whether or not there'll be an overall solution. His name is Grant F. Smith. He's director of research at the Institute for Research Middle East Policy, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit. Smith's research and analysis have appeared in the Financial Times of London, Arab News, Gannett, the Wall Street Journal, the Daily Star, Associated Press, and specialty publications such as the U.S. State Department's Washington Files. Smith uh, personally appeared on Voice, um, Voice of America, Television, the BBC, C-SPAN, Link TV, and CNN. Grant Smith, welcome to Afternoon Drive here on WWRL Radio 1600 in New York. Thank you very much, Dr. Dan. It's great to be here. Well, this is a momentous day. At least uh, the killing has stopped. Uh, I guess we have that to, to, uh, to be very uh, pleased with, given the humanitarian catastrophe happening on both sides. Yes. But, uh, Grant, start us off by having us understand why did it take 30 days or almost five weeks to get to this point? Well, I think uh, if you're a, a believer in Seymour Hersh's analysis and all of the articles he writes based on his deep contacts with the intelligence and military community, he revealed in an article on August 8th that the U.S. and Israel had already talked uh, in May about uh, an attack on Hezbollah positions. This was well before the July 12th capture of Israeli uh, soldiers, with the rationale being it would be kind of a dry run of tactical bombing to hit potent long-range and intermediate-range missiles uh, toward perhaps a future U.S. attack on Iran, as well as the so-called, uh, I think this is mislabeled, strategic bombing. Uh, we would call that bombing civilian targets, uh, such as bridges and roads, to try and wean the civilians away from supporting Hezbollah. Um, so if, if uh, the idea would be to preempt as well any missiles uh, based in southern Lebanon, and of course there were many based in southern Lebanon that were not the small katushas, but rather larger missiles, to preempt all of those if indeed the U.S. does ever attack Iran and its nuclear facilities. Well, now, of course, now Seymour Harris is not exactly a conspiracy theorist, but this kind of sounds somewhat conspiratorial. I mean, it, I mean, after all, I guess based on this um, argument, uh, Hezbollah sort of fell into the trap by crossing the border and, uh, and attacking Israel sort of gave them the pretext for doing it, I guess, if you carried that line of argument forward. Well, uh, I think uh, Hirsch has a certain amount of uh, authority in matters ever since he wrote about the Millet massacres. But analysts in general are casting about for the rationale for why the U.S. was so unwilling to jump in and work toward a ceasefire. Uh, we know on July 18th, Condoleezza Rice refused to even address calls for a ceasefire, saying simply that, quote, it should be put off until conditions are conducive, unquote. That's probably the most uh, 
laid back and, and uh, uh, hands off approach any U.S. Secretary of State has ever taken to a regional conflict. Well, you know, there's a report that inside the administration that she was being pulled and tugged um, by a couple of forces, including um, a guy named Walsh, Welch, who I understand was more of a traditional U.S. player broker role. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm blanking on the other person's name. He, he actually got was given a pardon by Bush one for his role right, in Elliot the Elliot Abrams. Elliot Abrams. I didn't have my notes in front of me. Uh, who was more the hawk and apparently was reporting directly to uh, Cheney, according to some reports. Right. Most, uh, in, in Hirsch's account, of course, um, the initial contact was with, with Cheney with the assumption that President Bush would go along. Most of the Middle East policy-making might, if you want to call it, is concentrated in Dick Cheney's office. Now, now there is this settlement, and I guess, would you analyze it for us in terms of its fragility? Will it hold? Uh, is, is this just pie in the sky? Sure. Uh, what do you think is going to happen here? It's, it's very fragile. I mean, uh, Hezbollah has gone uh, along with it, and Israel certainly has stopped. And I guess, let me, before I do let me just ask this question. Uh, did, did the Israelis really seriously underestimate the capability of Hezbollah? I think uh, they were somewhat hopeful in, in uh, making uh, strategic and tactical airstrikes the centerpiece of their program. Uh, ever since Curtis LeMay uh, uh, started theorizing about uh, attacks uh, in World War II, um, there have been many uh, ideas that you can dominate and win through air power, and I think this is another example of where uh, people going on that assumption have once again made a major mistake. So that that uh, and so the, the answer to that question is uh, apparently Hezbollah was much well. They, they had, it, I guess it had worked previously, but or or at least against other adversaries. Certainly uh, the uh, uh, Fatah and some of the other groups they were able to roll in. They did air, use ground forces and it was very successful and whatever. They didn't use as much this time. Uh, but you're saying it was because they really thought they could just use air power overwhelmingly and just destroy Hezbollah, or at least significantly right. degrade it. And, and degrade Hezbollah and also thwart support of it uh, by attacking so many purely civilian targets of, of people who may or may not have been supporting Hezbollah. Look, we dominate the air uh, and have ever since no-fly zones were established in Iraq, and I don't think anyone would say... Uh, with any certainty that we, we dominate the theater simply because we can fly around and hit targets at will. It's, it, with a guerrilla force, especially one like Hezbollah, much lighter equipment, much more mobile, uh, that's not the type of force you can take out with air power. And uh, so give us your assessment of what you think uh, is going to happen here. Is this formula going to work, and can it work absent an overall settlement, or is this just another Band-Aid on a long, festering problem that still has not fundamentally been resolved. Well, the, the ceasefire resolution 1701 lacks many uh, core and most relevant elements, uh, three of which are uh, really confronting the low-intensity conflict, which has never uh, really uh, been uh, shut down, prisoner exchanges, which uh, only merits a few words in the uh, ceasefire and, and broader regional issues. Uh, if we take them one by one, starting with low intensity conflict, many analysts place the start of the conflict uh, really at May 10 
uh, from Hezbollah's perspective, when the Lebanese army arrested a, an assassination squad led by former South Lebanese Army Corporal Mahmoud al-Rafay, who's a Mossad agent, uh, according to the army statements, they were in place in southern Lebanon, supported by Mossad to carry out all sorts of assassinations in Lebanon, and had been implicated in the killing of Ali Saleh and Ali Hassan Dib um, in 2003 and 1999. So the question remains whether that type of low-intensity warfare, which is waged by both sides, is going to continue. Well, let me just put a, put a pin in there for a minute, because this is information that I've, we've, I've not heard before, and you're basically saying that there was a assassination squad uh, with ties to Israel, if not directly, well, the Mossad is certainly, that's Israeli, right. uh, operating inside of Lebanon. If you, if you simply Google Abu Rafa and look at the international news accounts, you'll see that credible international news uh, covered that particular capture, and it was certainly, uh, certainly a factor in Hezbollah's calculation. There's low-intensity action going on on both sides. I right. don't only mention the Israelis. The, uh, Hezbollah has been firing rockets and, and doing all sorts of things as well. But uh, the, the central question is, uh, in this resolution, there's no particular uh, discussion about what uh, uh, types of events which can touch off a wider uh, conflagration are going to continue. All right, number two. Uh, is prisoners. Right. right. Um, prisoner exchange is a major issue. Um, Israel has about uh, 10,000 uh, administrative detainees who have no particular process. Um, when you say administrative, they were just picked up without any charges? Is that what that means, that term administrative? Exactly. It means that there are no charges, no trial. Uh, there's no particular process for getting them out. 10,000? 10, 10,000, 10, 124 females, 400 children. Um, and so most of those are Palestinian detainees. But, you know, you'll recall that in our own Revolutionary War, the idea of habeas corpus and the British impoundment of American sailors was a very big issue leading up to that war. And the idea that uh, we don't realize that uh, no process for prisoner exchange or even confronting those issues uh, is not going to, to continue to fester is, is a problem because it's not, for the most part, it's not treated as, as any, with any seriousness within the 1701 resolution. Uh, and finally, regional issues. Um, the ceasefire addresses a lot of Lebanon-specific UN resolutions, but some of the broader, grinding regional issues, particularly to do with territories such as Shaba Farms. Um, Would you talk about Shaba Farms? I must, I must confess my ignorance in not having, you know, and I often try my audience, I knew nothing about the Shaba Farm issue before this broke out. Could you just... Uh, just uh, I, I want you to continue, but I want to just, if you could put it, just, just share that with us, what that issue is about. Sure. Uh, Shabbat Farms is uh, a territory which uh, is located between the Lebanese village of Shabbat and the northwest slopes of Mount Hermon. And it's a, a very small area, about uh, 14 kilometers or nine miles in length. It's about two and a half, uh, well, two miles wide. Um, in a very strategic area. It was captured by Israel from Syria during the Six-Day War in 1967, uh, which did not involve Lebanon, and Israel uh, considers it to be part of Golan Heights, which is another territory that it uh, 
uh, annexed uh, after the 1967 war. Uh, Syria and Lebanon say it's now part of Lebanon, and they've been uh, trying to get uh, the United Nations and other uh, entities to recognize the need for returning it. But in, in, in general, it's another Israeli-occupied territory that is, is creating tension in the region. Okay, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to, because, I, I again, I confess my own ignorance to the audience and to you. I just had not heard of that before. I certainly know about the Golden Heights and you know, West Bank, Gaza, some of those issues, but this was something, this was entirely uh, new to me. Other regional issues that are, are not addressed in this uh, accord? Well, the uh, territory in general, 242, uh, East Jerusalem, West Bank, etc., cetera, uh, Golan Heights. Now, 242, because one of the other issues is, you know, people get up and they start pounding about the enforcement of these resolutions. There was all of a sudden a lot of discussion about the resolution which called upon the Lebanese government to disarm Hezbollah, which hadn't been done. But but is it not the case, too, that Israel, that there have been resolutions that have been out there longstanding for a while that uh, that Israel hasn't complied with? Absolutely. In fact, uh, that is just the question. Uh, 1559 is a relatively new resolution uh, calling for, uh, again, uh, Hezbollah to, to disarm and get out of southern Lebanon. Lebanon has taken the same approach that, unfortunately, uh, uh, some Bush administration uh, officials have taken of kind of reinterpreting U.N. resolutions uh, to say that, well, we are the army of southern Lebanon. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so that creates a lot of problems. But 242 is a U.N. Security Council resolution adopted on November 22nd of 1967, again after the 67 war, uh, which was... Uh, calling for a withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territory occupied in the recent conflict, meaning this in the Six-Day War. Now, Danielle Gillerman was uh, put on the spot in a UN stand-up uh, uh, a couple of days ago uh, by someone confronting him with this, and, and he completely uh, obfuscated the issue by saying, well, that wasn't a Security Council resolution or uh, a number of other things which weren't true. So th there's just this unwillingness uh, to really face up to these larger regional issues, uh, in spite of the fact of there being various peace plans which would allow for full Arab recognition of Israel if only it returns to the 67 borders. So some of these larger issues uh, are not on the table, and uh, those are the issues that are going to drive both parties back to conflict. You're listening to Grant Smith. Uh, again, he's a is director of research at the Institute for Research, the Middle East Policy. Uh, of, I'm sorry for Middle East Policy, uh, a Washington-based nonprofit.